The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All right, welcome back to the Sports Media Watch podcast. This is John Lewis, joined as always by Drew Lerner. Today we're going to be talking with Alex Faust, the former LA Kings play-by-play voice who will be working a couple of games this week for the Rangers, for TNT, and college football for Fox Sports. So he's a very busy man and he stops by to talk with us today. If you have not already, please subscribe to the Sports Media Watch podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. But first, before we get to anything else, let's start with the Monday Night Football numbers. Over 29 million viewers across ABC, ESPN, ESPN2, and ESPN Deportes for Eagles, Chiefs. Everybody knew it was going to be a big game, the big Super Bowl rematch. It more than lived up to the hype. On the English language networks alone, it was 28.96 million viewers, which is the largest Monday Night Football audience since 1996. That was the Cowboys and Packers in the days of Al Michaels, Frank Gifford, and Dan Deerdorf. I don't know who was on the sidelines back then. It might have been Eric Dickerson. The point is, it was a very long time ago, and on the long history of Monday Night Football, at least going back to 1991 anyway, this is a top 10 audience for Monday Night Football dating back to 1991. So we're talking about absolutely massive numbers, uh, the most watched NFL game of the year, And we are no longer having to mention Adobe Analytics because it blows past all of NBC's games as well. So we don't have to say, well, if you include Adobe Analytics, NBC, we don't have to do that anymore because this is the largest audience uh, without any caveats of the season. Obviously, it's the Eagles, it's the Chiefs. They're very good teams now. They met in the Super Bowl in February. They've got star players. The real surprise here isn't that it did this well. The surprise is that it aired on Monday Night Football at all. But that's an indication of where Monday Night Football has reached. This is a series that had really lost its relevance for a long time. When it went to ESPN, that was it. And ESPN did a lot of stuff to try to dress it up. They put in Tony Kornheiser. They got Tony to get on a plane and fly places and stay up after 8 p.m. for years, right? Uh, Ultimately, no matter what they would do, it was still just 
a slightly better version of the Sunday night game that ESPN adhered for years. The game quality was very poor. If you want to look at the turning point one, moving on from John Skipper, John Skipper had a lot of good ideas. Do I prefer the version of ESPN that John Skipper was putting forth? Yeah, I do. Uh, because you had Poppy Levitard making jokes at three in the afternoon every day. It was nice. A heck of a lot nicer than than the stuff they've got now, in my opinion. But uh, John Skipper was a huge impediment to the ESPN-NFL relationship because he did not cultivate one. The NFL wants you to tell it how important it is and how much you worship it, right? And John Skipper wasn't doing that, and so he had to go. Uh, and of course, it helped that ESPN under John Skipper or excuse me, it hurt that ESPN under John Skipper was doing some uh, uncomfortable journalism for the NFL. They've largely stopped doing that too, no offense to uh, Don Van Natta. But the point being, you know, ESPN for a lot of years was hamstrung by Skipper's lack of a relationship with the NFL. It was hamstrung by the journalism. These are all things that should not be a problem, but they were. Now that those are out of the way, the NFL is very comfortable with ESPN again. And ESPN has made a big show of improving Monday Night Football, improving its NFL coverage, expanding NFL Live, giving it a better time slot, bringing in Aikman and Buck. And uh, that's what you get. You get Eagles Chiefs. That was a, that was that would have been a Sunday Night Football game or, or a 425 game. But it was a Monday Night game. And with nearly 30 million viewers, you didn't pay a penalty for putting that game on Monday night. You didn't pay a penalty. I strongly doubt it would have done dramatically better on NBC. Maybe it would have gotten past 30 million, but it wouldn't have done dramatically better. So this is a permission slip for the NFL to put more games of this magnitude on Monday night in the future. Drew, I'm going to bring you in. That's a, that's a great place to leave it, John. This Not only was this a Super Bowl rematch, but this this was a Super Bowl dry run for ESPN, right? They you know got arguably the biggest matchup of the year. Uh, the two best teams in each conference going at it. And you're right. This is now a pass for the NFL to give ESPN the best games, not necessarily the year, but the, be the best game, as good of a game as they want, right? They, they no longer have to preclude themselves from um, or hinder themselves in giving ESPN marquee matchups. Um, I want to throw this back at you, John. I mean, obviously, we were expecting a big time number from this game, but were we expecting 29 million? You know, no, I wasn't expecting that kind of number. I thought it might get to 27, that it might be the most watched of the year, but 29, I wasn't expecting. And uh, one commenter said something that you do, you do have to factor in. It's three different networks, right? So that is an advantage that is not typical. Um, here's the reality without the Manning cast, maybe it is 27 million. Maybe that Manning cast is the extra ingredient. The Manning cast might be additive on some level, but I would actually contribute that extra couple million over your expectations to the simulcast on ABC. Um, yeah. I think being on broadcast is, is the bigger factor here. You might have the breakdown of the numbers handy. I actually don't have them in front of me, but the, AB, the ABC number is always substantially larger than the ESPN number, like by probably 10-15% or so, may, maybe even more. Yeah, well, the ABC number is this is a lion's share. Generally, half the audience at least is watching on ABC. Exactly. So I think if this happened in a different year when, you know, 
ESPN is not simulcasting each of their Monday night football games on ABC. This could have been more in that 27 range. I don't this think might... so. Can I just cut in? There's no sure. way this game's getting 27 million on ESPN alone. I mean, you know, the ABC part is, is crucial uh, with that, as you said. Um, I, I think it is worth noting this was always going to be an ABC game, even yeah. from the start of the season. So this is not a writer's strike edition. Uh, and the NFL probably is not giving Monday night this game without that ABC aspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So the 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 Chiefs and, and Eagles last night actually beat out the first Monday night football playoff game in 2022, came three million short of last year's playoff game. And then everything else on on the top 10 list from 1991 to the present day was all in the 90s, right? Oh, yeah, back in the yeah. 90s. So it, it, there's two games this millennia that have cracked the top 10 most watched Monday night football games, one of which was a Dallas Cowboys playoff game, and the other one was this game last night. So um, it goes to show you that, I mean, sure, you know, you have the confluence of factors with ABC, with the ESPN2. Um, ESPN's numbers actually include Deportes, which added 60-some-odd thousand. So... I mean, you have all these things that are that are going for it, but at the end of the day, this is a monster number. Yeah, and look, uh, this is a series Monday Night Football a few years ago. The question was, will ESPN even keep the rights? A few years later, here we are talking about $30 million for a game. Going forward, is this sustainable in terms of ESPN putting the game on ABC every week of the season, which is the main reason why viewership has been up so much this season? probably not. I think a lot of people have said, oh, this makes the ABC simulcast permanent. I think there are contractual considerations at play here that make the ABC simulcast not a permanent thing. But when those ABC simulcasts do happen, those three or four a season or how many, whatever the number is in the deal, they may be games of this quality. You might see those three or four ABC games are maybe two of them are game of the season type games. All right. Well, it is time for our guest this week. So please welcome Alex Faust. All right. Well, we're very happy to be joined today by the great Alex Faust, the NHL play-by-play -play voice who you'll be hearing this weekend on the NHL Thanksgiving Day showdown on, uh, on TNT. That should be the Black Friday showdown. Uh, and uh, you'll also hear him on college football. Uh, Alex is uh, taking the time today to join us from Pittsburgh, where he's in town to call a Rangers game for MSG tomorrow. So very busy time of year, as it is for everybody, but probably especially for folks who have to travel for a living. Uh, Alex, thanks so much for joining oh, us. Oh, thanks today. for having me, guys. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, and well, why don't we start with that? You're kind of the hustle and bustle of the holiday season. Uh, what is it like going from game to game to game? You're doing MSG tonight, uh, TNT Friday, and uh, I think you said you were doing college football over the weekend as well. Yeah, I got one more game with with Fox over the weekend um, for college football. But yeah, it's this is what they call that crossover time of year when college basketball starts. Um, you know, because I'm involved heavily in the NHL, hockey is ongoing, and of course, college football is nearing its its final week. And there are a lot of folks who are doubling up on college football this weekend, even at Fox, doing one game on Friday, one game on Saturday. So. Uh, as I tell people all the time who wonder what it's like to work in this industry, yeah, you get to work in the toy department, but you also have to work nights, weekends, and holidays. So 
just be prepared for that. And especially this time of year when everybody's spending time with their families at home. Uh, a lot of folks in the sports industry are, are trying to put on the entertainment so you can sit down and relax and enjoy on your couch with family. Yeah. And so you're obviously, I imagine, flying commercial. I don't think the networks are, are putting private jets out for the announcers. What is it like being in the airport at this time of year when there's just so many people trying to get everywhere? You know, I think the best advice I can give to anybody is travel early. If you're on the 6 a.m. flight, more often than not, you're not going to have a lot of folks who, and, and that I may be wrong on that, but uh, through my experience, there are a lot fewer uh, you know, families. Uh, it's a lot more of just business travelers at that hour. Uh, you get a little bit later in the day, and that's when everybody's rushing to try to be able to, you know, get off work and still travel. Luckily, I have not encountered in you know, the 10 years that I've been doing this, I have not encountered any major travel mishaps. And, and I've had a couple of close calls, everybody has, but uh, nothing to where, you know, an entire trip was derailed. Um, even with all the moving parts and pieces and different employers that I'm working for. So it's a hectic time of year, but uh, sometimes the best days to travel are actually Thanksgiving morning and Christmas morning because every all the rush is over. Yeah, that's actually a great point. You know, my, I, I myself, I'm not a big travel person. I've been on like two flights since 1998. So <laughs> I can't even imagine what that whole experience is like. Uh, but uh, why don't we go ahead and talk a little bit about, you know, the, where you are in your career. You're obviously a very busy man doing a lot of a lot of assignments for a lot of networks. But obviously, we have to talk about the L.A. King situation. That had to be, uh, I, I imagine, a complete shock. I think it was a shock for a lot of people who were hearing about it uh, that they did not decide to continue on with you. What was that experience like for you? And, you know, how do you look at that in the broad story of your career? Sure. It was a shock in a lot of ways. Not only the fact that I had never been let go from a job before, so I didn't know how to process that and all the emotions that came along with it, especially uh, knowing that I wasn't going to be working with uh, the, the TV crew that I had grown so close to. So that was really hard, making all those phone calls to, to people and just thanking them. That was That was hard. It was a shock as well because when I signed in LA, so much was made uh, in the interview process and in subsequent years there of they wanted it to be a long-term proposition. And I had every intent of, of making it a long-term proposition. I had put down roots there, uh, bought a house there. And, you know, it's a business at the end of the day. So it happens to pro athletes. It happens to white collar workers. It happens to blue collar workers. It is uh, just a fact of life that sometimes businesses have to pivot when there are challenges thrown their way. And I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm naive to anything. I know what the realities are in the business right now, especially for regional sports networks. And at the time, uh, the Kings rights deal was up and I was just a casualty of that. Uh, they decided they wanted to go with a simulcast. Uh, this was before they inked a new rights agreement with Valley Sports, so essentially continuing with that relationship. But, um, yeah, I guess in, in, at the end of the day, uh, I was the only one from the crew let go. Uh, everybody else was brought back this season. So it's disappointing. And, um, you know, I, I still wonder if, uh, you know, the economics were a little bit different or if circumstances were a little bit different, whether 
uh, it would have just been status quo, but uh, life moves on and, you know, you can't spend time dwelling on the past, especially when it's out of your control and uh, especially when the reasons aren't ones that you necessarily uh, love or agree with. But I'm I'm OK. And uh, I've I've been very fortunate to be asked to work on a slew of projects. My My phone didn't stop ringing this summer. And it was actually really hard a lot of times to say, no, I actually want to take a little bit of time to breathe, um, which I don't know if I've done a great job with because I've taken on a lot put on my plate. But I'm, I'm very fortunate that, uh, you know, people called right after and, uh, and I have a lot of uh, fun projects I'm working on. Alex, how much time do you really spend kind of thinking about the greater forces in the sports industry, right? I mean, I know you got your start actually in corporate America mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you you were obviously a casualty of you know the larger forces uh, that the sports industry kind of brings here. Is that something that you're ever even thinking about until like or before something like that happens? Somebody asked me the other day if I wanted to go back to corporate America, and I said if I can help it, I would not. I would like to not go back because uh, this is a fun job. But I think it it actually helped me rationalize, and it, it continues to help me rationalize a lot of the uh, broader machinations in the business and I think has in a way been instructive to, at the end of the day, this is a business. I know it, it's fun and uh, it's entertainment, but there are a lot of bigger picture forces that work here. And I think the name of the game for any young broadcaster coming up through the ranks is adaptability. The fact that, I had a skill set that was a little bit different helped me when the analytics revolution came to hockey and I was able to process and understand some of those uh, figures and, and data points uh, a little bit more quickly, um, I think, because of my background. That's not to say that, you know, no other uh, retired player or broadcaster you know, can't wrap their arms around it because I think the whole industry has done a great job in doing that. But little little things here or there that have been somewhat helpful. And I, I think going forward uh, right now as a, a full-time freelancer, essentially, um, you know, balancing the needs of somebody who needs to fill a hole in their schedule with my own needs to build my own brand um, and take on interesting assignments that keep things fresh uh, as as a broadcaster, uh, as an employee for all these places, I need to bring my best every single night too and have to be fresh when I show up for work too. You, you kind of got at something I'm, I'm pretty interested in as a freelancer. You know, you're working for all these different networks. Uh, are you the one that is going about scheduling your own games? And how does that like kind of logistically work when you're working for all these different channels? Essentially, yes. Uh, I'm very cognizant of when an opportunity has floated my way of gaming out. Okay. Is this going to come into conflict with that? Okay. If it does, can we get ahead of it? Can we massage these things? Can I miss one game to maybe placate another group, but still be able to, um, you know, satisfy all the requirements of the job. And a good example of that has been the last few years with college football and Fox sports. Uh, as, as you know, I have a long-standing relationship with them. They've been flexible with my schedule since day one, and, and you know, since I moved to Los Angeles, it became more difficult to be able to accept a full season's worth of assignments because my commitment was to the team, and my loyalty was to them. 
boxed all the way, was happy to accommodate and say, okay, we'll, we'll have a handful of college basketball games for you. We'll, we'll be able to accommodate a partial football schedule for you. And in a lot of ways, I felt a sense of loyalty to go back and, and actually do a full football schedule and go back and continue to work college basketball um, to fill a need that they had because of uh, how they were loyal to me all these years. So it's been a great relationship. And all the while, when an opportunity came about to work for TNT and with Apple TV for baseball, um, you know, I'm very fortunate that all of those places have been incredibly accommodating and understanding that a lot of times, just like their schedules are done months, sometimes up to a year in advance, broadcaster schedules are kind of like that too. So um, while it's sometimes hard to uh, say no to something or to ask, you know, for a day off for something when you're going to work for somebody else, for the most part, everybody has been really understanding with trying to make all the puzzle pieces fit. And uh, it's it's been fun to bounce from sport to sport and, and work for different people. And you just broaden your uh, your, your group of relationships uh, when you get to work with so many different people in, in the TV industry. So kind of getting back to, you know, where you are right now in your career. Uh, so you did work for a team and, and being the voice of a team is a very specific kind of role, especially in LA, because that's Vince Scully, Chick Hearn, you know, Bob Miller. That is, there's a lot of legends who did games in LA, but obviously there's an entire other aspect of this industry that is national. That is, being a national voice first, and you're doing, you know, the big game of the week, et cetera, et cetera. Are you looking to eventually get back into being the voice of a team? Or are you looking now at, I'm going to be a national guy from here on? It's actually a question I've asked myself, because in some ways, what happened with the Kings, while it stung, and it, and it still stings a bit, it afforded me a luxury that you don't get in this business very often and that's time it's time away from full time in a sport with a team to explore other opportunities it's in this case an opportunity to fill in a little bit with another team and uh, you know see do it i really want this uh job and um you know it's a question that I think, uh, you know, after one thing ends, you have to figure out, okay, do I, do I still want this? And I think I'll figure it out over the next couple months um, what exactly that answer is. But for now, I'm just enjoying the ride. Because um, you're right, being a national voice, you get to, to parachute in, do the game, and go home and kind of wipe your hands clean of it. With a team, there's an emotional component to it. There's an emotional investment. Um, even though I wasn't from Los Angeles, you get swept up when you're working every single day, when you're at the rink every day, when you're building relationships with coaches and players, you know, never mind the crest on the front of the jersey, you are part of that family. You're part of that organization and you're vested in their success. So it's a very different feeling than being vested in the success of a network. And and to that end, uh, with with TNT and the NHL, let's say, when it's all hands on deck for the playoffs and I'm being asked to jump from game to game and assignment to assignment, I'm vested in the success of TNT by making sure uh, I can fill a void where they need people to, to fulfill this assignment. 
very different than with a team where you are, uh, you know, a, an essential function of the business, essentially. Broadcast is the front porch. Just like we, we say all the time in, in college sports that athletics are the front porch of a university, uh, while broadcasting is the front porch of a team. And in professional sports, you are conveying a message. You are, in a sense, selling tickets. You're selling the idea of this team. Uh, it is it is very different. And uh, I'm, I'm lucky I've been able to touch both sides of the fence, if you will. Well, let me ask you, you talk about being part of the LA Kings, part of the team, invested in their success. Does that stay at all after something like that? Are you still following the team? Do you watch the games occasionally? I'm rooting for individuals more so, you know, it's hard to, um, you know, root for the, for, you know, a team in a sense and wave a flag when, you know, at the end of the day, I was only there for six years. Um, I, I'm still very much rooting for individuals to succeed. And, you know, the relationships that I developed with, with several of the players, uh, I'm happy to see when they're having success. I'm happy to see when coaches are having success. You know, a lot of the folks, um, in the in the front office who I worked with, I'm, I'm happy that they get, uh, and right now the team is doing really well. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to see that come to fruition because it was a long rebuild and it required a lot of patience on the part of everybody who worked within the organization. So it's hard to say that I'm, I'm waving the flag as a fan because I'd be lying if I said that, but um, I'm for sure happy, even for my former partner, Jim Fox, um, you know, to have one more ticket, uh, the team winning the ch uh, championship, um, you know, he's he's such a, a a big part of that organization and such a loyal um, king that um, I'd be really happy for him if he gets one more shot to be a part of a magical ride like that. I'm kind of curious, you know, it seems like you've called every sport under the sun, right? You do a lot of hockey, of course, but you do college football, basketball. Uh, you did an NFL game this year. Uh, you've done tennis in the past. How do you stay prepared for all of these different sports that all have, you know, kind of different rhythms to them? And, uh, you know, obviously the personnel is different. The play calling style is different. Sure. Um, yeah. What's what's your preparation like um, when you're doing so many sports all at once? Well, I'll freely admit that being in a sport full time. So for the, for instance, this year, committing to a full college football season because I didn't have a, a hockey schedule to juggle it allowed me to really become more well-versed in the sport on a national basis i used to focus almost primarily on the leagues that i was covering the mountain west pac-12 a little bit of the big 12 this year it's almost been exclusively big 12 games and it allowed me to really be well-versed in the national space you know i'm watching every game saturday now as much as i can um you know channel surfing before our game is up and, you know, it allows you to be, you know, more up on big time storylines. I think coming in doing one NFL game was actually a really instructive experience, too. Of, you know, when you're embedded in the NFL, you, it's like drinking out of a fire hose. There's so many resources available to you. It's, in a, it's almost in a way easier than prepping for a college game because there's so much coverage and every stat you, you need is available to you. Um, there are no different leagues to go to for different stats. It's all in one place. There are fewer players to prep for. You're talking about a 53-man roster as opposed to a 100-something on a college roster. I mean, it's it's a completely different experience. And I'll say this, going into a hockey game, when I'm in it full-time, it's, it's 
so much easier to prep because you're constantly looking at um, news clippings or you're watching other games. So here I'm in Pittsburgh and I'll admit I had to go out of my way to sit down and watch start to finish the Penguins game they played against the Golden Knights the other night because I wanted to get a sense for how they're playing. Same for the Rangers. They were playing the Dallas Stars the other night. I wanted to see that. When Seattle plays Colorado Friday, I'm going to sit down and take time to actually watch the last couple games as opposed to when I'm covering the NHL as a full-time job. I can watch some highlights here or there. I can read a couple news clippings and, and kind of get a sense for where teams are at because I've seen them once or twice already. This will be the first time I see Colorado or Seattle this year for TNT. So I have to spend extra time to be up on that. Same was true doing baseball for Apple TV. I'm sure if I were a regular baseball announcer doing 100-plus games, I'd be more well-versed on, A, the league, and B, the opposing teams. But if I'm getting two new teams every week, it's going to create a situation where I have to spend more time to make sure that I'm actually up on the storylines that matter and not speaking out of turn uh, when when things come about in the game. So long-winded way of, of answering your question, but even you know other sports like tennis, you know, sitting down and doing the work, it's not something you can um, just kind of fly in and, and do. Uh, that's why I, I stopped covering tennis full-time because it came down to a, a question of, okay, I could probably do, you know, 10 event days per year, and that means, you know, two tournaments, maybe three tournaments if I wanted to. That's not covering the sport. Um, and I enjoyed watching tennis, um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't going to be as enjoyable to just come in do a couple tournaments and leave uh that wasn't something i wanted to do and i, I don't think it would have been fair to to viewers uh, to have that happen either you know you know to that point uh sean grandy likes to say if somebody asks you if you can do an event you say yes uh mm-hmm. so what goes into the decision to say you know what i can do tennis but i just cannot do it to the extent that i would like and i'm going to have to let this one go what goes into making that decision and how difficult is it to decide that you're going to step away from a sport? It's very difficult because uh, a couple of the highlights, I think, of my professional life were covering tennis. I was so fortunate with the Tennis Channel to be sent to Australia. Uh, the last time they had live rights to the Australian Open, I was there for it. And it was a magical experience. Uh, to this day, the coolest thing I've ever done. Um I got sent to the pandemic Roland Garros in France, um, which, yeah, it was cool. It was a strange experience being there in the middle of the pandemic, but it was amazing to be able to do a French Open. And these are highlights, professional highlights I will take with me forever. Um, to step away, I, I think it's just a question of commitment. And I knew that at that time in my career, I was continuing to ramp up with um, – assignments for Fox Sports. I was carrying a full-time hockey schedule. I had my summers open, but I didn't feel as though I wanted to fill every waking hour with work. Uh, and again, you know, I, I say I use that term loosely. It's it's a labor of love. It's it's fun. We get to do incredible things and and I would hardly call it a job. But it's still a commitment nonetheless. And you have to park the hours and park time away from people you love. And 
I just felt as though I was at the point in my life where I wanted to take a step back and, and recharge a bit. And again, could I have maybe, you know, thrown a tournament together here or there? Sure. But I didn't think it was fair to just hang on in that sense. And the same with, you know, college basketball, college football, baseball, hockey, who knows? I, I don't know where the next step of my career will be. I don't know what opportunity will come knocking, but if I want to be part of something, I need to feel as though I'm all in on it because I don't think it does your employer a, a favor. I don't think it does your career any favors if you're, you know, one foot in, one foot out. I think being committed shines through in your work, really. And uh, I'm enjoying being back doing college basketball in the Big East. I, that was where I got my start with Fox Sports. And it, it's such a pleasure to, to you know, work there again, even though that wasn't a sport that necessarily was, um, you know, the, the one that I'm associated with. It was a pleasure doing college football with a full crew over a full season. Uh, you know, being committed to these things was important to me. And I don't know what opportunity will knock next, but uh, whatever does, I want to make sure I'm committed with whatever I'm doing. And uh, let me sneak in a quick social media question. Uh, I noticed you don't appear to be on Twitter anymore, uh, which seems to be something that happened relatively recently. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, if you don't mind, like what made you decide as a broadcaster to say, okay, I'm done with social, I'm done with Twitter, I'm done with X. Uh, and uh, general thoughts on being a broadcaster on social. So for a long time, it served a purpose. And I think right now with the way that that platform is being run, I don't necessarily agree with some of the upper management decisions. And as a customer, I guess, I felt it was my right to um, you know, stop patronizing a, a business. Uh, kind of as simple as that. Uh, I'm still on social media. You know, I have an Instagram page. Not that that's much of a, you know, that's more of a leisure thing. Um, you know, I guess in terms of uh, scrolling, less doom scrolling, I guess. I don't know. I, I For a long time, I was on social media as a way to connect. And, and when I first started, it was, you know, we're going 10, 12 years ago, right? I was mostly in college hockey. I was still in college. And it was a great way to connect with that niche because it's a very small community, the college hockey community. And there were very few places to get solid information. And that was such a great way to connect with people who were covering the same sport. And the same was true even over the last few years. You know, sports has its own niche on that platform. And I'm sure it'll continue to to serve a role, but I didn't feel as though I was um, you know, part of any sort of conversation. I don't have takes to give. I don't have uh opinions to share on anything publicly, really. Uh, I'm sure if you, you, you know, get me socially in front of people, sure, I'm, I'm an opinionated person from time to time, but um, I didn't feel as though it was needed to post anything. And frankly, at the end of the day, all it became was just posting about, oh, here's what game I'm calling today. And that's about it. So, um, you know, I, I think it just ran its course, really. And I'm sure there are people who will still find a function for it, but it's just not for me. I imagine that uh, you probably dealt with some of the same stuff Joe Buck deals with, that every broadcaster deals with, the kind of deluge of people who are critical. Mm -hmm. And of course, getting looped in when somebody else is calling a game and they say sure. you're calling it. Uh, did that have anything to do with the decision or was that just a no. nuisance? I learned my lesson actually when I first couple of years with the Kings, um, 
because I think I was trying so hard to um, ingratiate myself to fans that I was very active and would would discuss things and reply to people even when there were criticisms. Um, and I I could have been more judicious in terms of just letting it lie. Um, you know, I was 27. I didn't know better at the time. But, you know, when you're in a business where everybody has an opinion, some are good. I, honestly, I, I get a lot of interesting feedback sometimes of, um, you know, a fact that we could amplify or something that we didn't see live on air. We had a we had several instances of that. And I know Jim Fox, my my former partner in L.A., he would use it as a tool. That, you know, if a viewer at home saw something that we didn't because they have a, you know, 65 inch HD TV and we're, you know, calling the game up in the rafters. Sometimes it's actually a good tool to have an extra pair of eyes. Um, but yeah, you're right. The, the, there can be some criticism and vitriol and, uh, you know, I, I won't lie. I see when somebody messages you, I see a, a good chunk of it, but I, I'm so busy nowadays. Um, and I've kind of drifted away from the feeling that, um, there needs to be an interaction um, on a daily basis with people. I actually find myself or I found myself the last couple of years in LA getting a lot more joy out of just interacting with people in person in the stands. Um, you know, people would come up to me and say hi, and we'd start talking about, um, you know, the team or, and you know, maybe this is a function of this because I was such a college hockey nut. People would ask me about college hockey and we'd get to talking about that. So yeah, there'll be an element of that that goes missing. But um, I think to your point about, uh, you know, having to answer to some person online, you, know, you mentioned I used to work at a accounting firm. Well, you wouldn't go up to an accountant and tell them how to do their job. So, you know, telling a broadcaster how to do theirs, I don't necessarily think is, is fair. There are certainly fair points, uh, you know, that, you know, we try to be accurate. We try to be um, fair. Uh, if you're with a team, you try to do that team justice, but uh, it's hard to please everybody. Well, I'll get you out of here on this. Uh, obviously, you talk a lot about college hockey. You mm -hmm. were a big college broadcaster, kind of a prodigy in, in, in some ways. What do you tell the next generation of broadcasters? Especially, you know, this is a tough industry. I mean, as you well know, what do you tell the next generation of broadcasters about getting into this industry, what the future might hold, and, and the way that things are now as, as a business? Be flexible. Be adaptable. Be varied in your skill set because you never know what's going to be needed to fulfill this job. It could be when you're coming up through the ranks now in the minor leagues. It used to be you did travel coordinating or you were in public relations. Now there's a lot of corporate sales involved. I would say to younger broadcasters, there are more opportunities than ever before to be in front of a microphone and hone your craft. But there are different pathways than what there used to be in this industry. It used to be go through the minor leagues, go through your paces and work your way up. I'm proof positive that there is no convention, conventional path to reaching your goals. And sometimes all it takes is a, a lucky break here or there. Sometimes it means taking a different path or staying in a market and doing stuff on the periphery 
and getting noticed by somebody. Sometimes it still means taking a chance and going the minor league route. I just think that there are so many different ways you can make a career out of this. And the dirty little secret for a lot of broadcasters coming up is that it's not a full-time pursuit. I'm one of the very lucky ones who gets to make a full-time living out of this. For a lot of people, it is a passion project and something that they hope will turn into something bigger. I was lucky enough to turn part-time work into a full-time gig, but I know that's not where everybody lands. And at the end of the day, if you love it, and if you're passionate about the work, if you're passionate about the prep, it'll shine through and you'll you'll find your way in this business. But you're right, it is not easy. And uh, it's it's very different than it used to be, but you have to still love it at the end of the day. All right, that's a good way to go out. Uh, thank you so much, Alex, for taking the time. And like I said at the beginning, Alex will be calling the Rangers game tomorrow for MSG Network, and then he'll be on TNT Friday, college football on Saturday, and then maybe a little bit of rest uh, after that. Yeah, you know what? December will be good to breathe. It'll be good to see family. It's Actually, this is the first time I'm seeing my family for Thanksgiving in about 10 years, so I'm really looking forward to that uh, in between games. And then uh, we'll see what the holidays bring. All right. Alex Faust, thanks again. Thank you, John. All right. That was Alex Faust. A lot of really great insight there. Always happy to talk with him and uh, looking forward to hearing him later this week. I think this is as good a time as any to switch gears to the big sports media controversy of the past week. And of course, you know what that is, the Carissa Thompson disclosure on the, uh, what was it now, the uh, Pardon My Take podcast, where she admitted to fudging sideline reports when she was uh, doing that uh, early in her career. And uh, this is uh, in a little bit of uh, transparency. We have already finished that conversation. We're coming back to tape the lead into it. It went quite a bit long. Uh, so here is, uh, you know, Drew and I discussing the Carissa Thompson controversy. Well, I have a very interesting, well, I don't know if I'd say interesting, but it's different point of view on this story. I think Carissa Thompson was, well, one, let's get to the cardinal rule aspect. I believe that sideline reporting can be journalism. I do not believe that sideline reporting is always journalism because play-by-play -play is not journalism. The analysis is not journalism. To me, I find there to be a distinction between relaying what the coach said at halftime and, for example, Lisa Salters hearing Draymond Green ranting and raving outside of the locker room, or Michelle Tafoya chasing down what happened to Gary Kubiak. Uh, and I don't feel like Carissa was admitting to a cardinal sin here, because while I do believe that there is a journalistic element to the sideline reporting role, there are parts of the job that, in my view, are not subject to those cardinal rules. Now, that doesn't mean you can go making things up, but it also means I'm not losing my mind over this, because what we would typically hear are, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Generalities. They are basically just content to get you to the next part of the game. And I feel like Carissa was not necessarily serving herself well when she said she made it up. But what she was really saying is that, well, I didn't have any information, so I just said what I saw during the game. Now, of course, it matters whether or not she was attributing those words directly to a coach, but she says 
that she wasn't. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure someone will go back and actually look at some of these sideline reports. But, I mean, it gets to the crux of this one aspect of sideline reporting is so meaningless most of the time. It's questionable why broadcasts even do it. But especially in the case that, you know, if she didn't even get an interview with a coach, what's the point of going down to right. the sideline reporter? Why wouldn't she just say you know, to the producer or the director, hey, like I wasn't able to catch up with the coach. Um, you know, we're not going to have any quotes from him. I have XYZ story that I've already prepared from, you know, right. the week prior. Maybe we can do one of those if we'd like. But, um, you know, we're, we're not getting any direct quotations from the coach today. Sorry. <laughs> I don't think the viewers would be any the wiser or be missing uh, any aspect of the bro- broadcast if uh, if she decided to just not say anything at all. She'd probably do that now, but when she's 25 years old and not established in the industry, and you know, if she dares let her hair go brunette for one day, Deadspin writes a whole article about it. I'm not excusing it. I just don't really see what everybody else sees. I've been kind of befuddled to see a lot of people who I like and respect be so serious about ultimately someone just saying, hey, you know, when I was just starting out, can you believe I was doing this? Like, the, go ahead. Well, well, here, here's where I'll push back on you, John. The one thing that it did do is kind of belittled a job in this industry that is already subject to a lot of scrutiny from from fans, viewers, people on social media. Um, one that is primarily filled by women who already struggle to get a foothold in in sports. And so it, I feel like it really struck a nerve, specifically with sideline reporters. I mean, we saw um, many sideline reporters, including Tracy Wolfson, who we're going to have on the podcast in a few weeks here. And I'm, I'm sure we'll ask her about this um, if it's still relevant, I guess. But um. I understand why those people took it so personally, right? Because they're putting in a lot of work and oftentimes it's going very undervalued by the the average fan. So from everything that I've read, I don't believe she belittled sideline reporters at all. What she did was say something that people who already have a low opinion of sideline reporters could use to belittle them further. That's not Carissa's fault. That's the fault of the people who are doing the belittling. The way that I look at it is, if somebody tells me, man, you know, when I was in college, I used to cheat off this guy's paper. I'm not going to go and say, wow, college kids are all cheating. That's amazing. They're all a bunch of cheaters. Like to me, it impugns Carissa's work as a sideline reporter. If you view that as impugning Lisa Salters or Tracy Wolfson, that's on you. Then I don't think Carissa deserved to have the burden of, oh my goodness, all these sexists on social media are going to have more fodder. They're going to have fodder no matter what anybody does. One of the big problems that we've had over the past few years is everybody is so overly concerned with what people on social media who are always going to find themselves proven right because they are not operating within a (laughs) fact-based paradigm, right? They're just so preoccupied with the perception, oh no, Someone on social media is going to be disrespectful to me. They're going to be disrespectful to you anyway. Well, Carissa didn't do anything to affect the image of sideline reporters. Do you think that the perception of sideline reporters 
has changed meaningfully from the days when Lisa Guerrero was literally mocked on SportsCenter by her ostensible colleagues at ESPN when she was doing Monday Night Football for ABC. Do you think that times have actually changed or is it just that people aren't saying these things as much, right? And again, that's not a Carissa Thompson problem. That's not something Carissa, he did not meaningfully change the problem. The problem is one that has existed probably since the beginning of the role and has ultimately at best been dormant because it's no longer socially acceptable for normal people to be openly sexist the way that it was in the days of I love football on TV, shots of Gina Lee, hanging with my friends and twins. This is all before your time, right? Mm -hmm. But there was a time when it was where the where it was open and people were really bold about it. They're not that way anymore, but I don't really necessarily think their views have changed. That's not something Carissa did, right? That is an environment that is something that people really, you know, I, I don't know what can be done about it, but ultimately it's not something that I look at this one podcast interview and say, oh man, look what she's done. I think what you're saying, and you know, maybe this is a bit of a um, a, a blunt uh, comparison here, but I think in much the way that Trump activated a large portion of the population that weren't necessarily um, keen on politics prior to 2016, didn't really pay much attention to it, um, and got them to care about something. Carissa Thompson, in the same way, by saying she made up stories, activated an audience that was already predisposed to thinking sideline reporters are worthless and, and having sexist opinions um, and, and made them feel justified in their beliefs enough to, you know, go on social media uh, and, you know, professionals in the industry, very highly regarded professionals felt the need to defend their, their occupation for that. Well, one, I would say I don't believe for a second that they needed Carissa Thompson to have those thoughts, right? Because, I mean, if you, the types of people I'm talking about, so I, I mentioned before, it's no longer socially acceptable for normal people to talk the way that they did in the 90s and 2000s, right? But for the abnormal people on social media, it always is, and they haven't stopped. And you're not, this, you're not going to be able to make them not feel the way that they feel. I don't think Carissa needed to activate them. The fact that Lisa Salters, who's probably the best to ever do it, the fact that Tracy Wolfson, with all of her accomplishments, all the Super Bowls she's done, the fact that Laura Oakman, who, you know, obviously she's never been on a top tier team, but if you, if you watch the NFL, she's been a regular presence there forever. Um, the fact that they all felt the need to defend their profession from this podcast anecdote says that there is a much broader problem here, right? When Jordan Poole acts a fool on the court, LeBron James doesn't say, Jordan Poole, you are diminishing basketball players with your play, right? Because we all know, oh, well, obviously Jordan Poole's, you know, that's not the guy. The fact that Lisa Salters would have needed to say anything tells me there's a much broader problem here that Carissa Thompson has nothing to do with. And that problem, again, in my view, is, and I, I didn't even mention Michelle Tafoya because Michelle spoke out about this as well. Yeah. And Michelle is, is as good as anyone who ever did silent reporting. Um, it tells me that 
as I said before, the perception of sideline reporters that existed in the 90s and 2000s, right? When, you know, it was an open and outward secularization of sideline reporters at that time. There was no question about it. It was not under the surface. And I, I think the perception, the not taking that role seriously, and by the way, I talk about sexualization. Let's be real. Ahmad Rashad, who I love, we all love Ahmad. Ahmad's not a journalist. Eric Dickerson, who I mentioned earlier, not a journalist, and also not, and I mean no offense to Eric Dickerson, but I'm sure he's aware of this, not good at the job, right? They put Sal Masekela on the sidelines on the NBA on ESPN in a Hawaiian shirt you know, to do his little X Games cosplay. The point is, I t I, it's not even just in terms of sexualization. It's also in terms of hiring former athletes with no journalism background. Someone who was friends with Michael Jordan was on the sidelines covering the Bulls for all six of those finals. It was about access, you know? And it's only really recently that people are even trying to not have it be that way. And when I say really recently, I mean like in your lifetime, so like 20 years. But honestly, I think that position has always been one that has been viewed by the people making the hiring decisions as one that is more for entertainment than information, which is why you had former athletes, which is why you had, you know, people who were openly sexualized in that role. And even to this day, I mean, I'm not trying to take anything away from anybody at all, but I, I mean, it's obviously not a coincidence that a certain type of woman is overrepresented on the sidelines of these games, which would be, well, white, obviously, blonde, young, and of a certain size. There are obviously exceptions to that, but the exceptions are like some of the most accomplished people in the industry who are, you know, maybe overqualified for these sideline jobs. But if you're looking at the median sideline reporter, someone who is just okay, not someone who is you know, I mean, Lisa Salters used to work for ABC News. I think she used to do like foreign reports, like she'd go overseas, you know, like if you're not looking at that level of accomplishment, even to this day, you're still more likely to see someone who was a cheerleader in college or a pageant winner or, you know, somebody where, yeah, obviously this person got the job because they're skilled at, at, the, at reporting, but it can't possibly be a coincidence. It's not only white blonde women of a certain age and size that want to be sideline reporters. So it can't be a coincidence. So even to this day, that's still a factor. Obviously, if you are accomplished, it has to bother you. And of course, Carissa is very symbolic of this, right? Carissa Thompson is very symbolic of what I'm talking about. I mentioned before the Deadspin article. She had, she was on Best Damn Sports Show, period. And she, she had her hair dark and was wearing glasses. And there was a Deadspin article about Carissa Thompson depressed or whatever, right? I mean, that's amazing. I mean, that's unbelievable. Carissa was not blonde for one day and they wrote an article about it. So, you know, I don't know. To me, I think they look at Carissa as being maybe emblematic and representative of the not taking the job seriously but it's not really her fault. And her anecdote really doesn't impugn anybody. It impugns her. But of course, the other thing too, is that Carissa graduated to hosting, which is viewed as a higher profile job. It's an obviously higher profile job. 
you don't go from hosting to the sidelines. When they put Rachel Nichols on the sidelines, that was when you knew hmm, something's up here. He was supposed to be hosting the finals and he's on the sidelines. That's weird. So I think that's an element of it too. You have someone who graduated to hosting who's looking back and saying, when I was a sideline reporter, I didn't even try. That's probably got to be pretty galling. Um, there was also the element, the race element. Mike Freeman brought this up. A few other people did. Um, obviously, any time that someone who is white gets in trouble, you can infer that if that person was black, they'd get in worse trouble, right? So the example I like to use is Stephen Glass and Jason Blair. They both plagiarized. Uh, Stephen Glass plagiarized at the New Republic. Jason Blair did so at the New York Times. These were both very bold you know, acts of plagiarism. Jason Blair did it in 2003. Stephen Glass did it five years earlier. But when Jason Blair did it, people were talking about affirmative action. And, oh, this is what happens when you give you know, these jobs to these people who aren't qualified. And it's like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Why is there that extra element that there wasn't with Stephen Glass, right? So again, anytime that uh, a, a white person gets into trouble, you could obviously assume that a black person would get into even bigger trouble. Nonetheless, I found that angle of the story to be a complete non sequitur. Um, I, I just really did, because yes, obviously, if Christina Pink had made that admission, she would be getting descended upon in a really nasty way on social media. But again, you could literally say that about any controversy. But this gets to one of the issues with outrage culture. I won't use the term cancel culture. One person's opinion is one thing. But one person's opinion times a thousand becomes something that is discreet and different. And there's no one statement that anybody made about this that I thought was out of bounds. But collectively, for the entire industry to be weighing in in such outraged tones, for there to be so many editorials written about, really, honestly, an, an anecdote, an, an innocuous anecdote, for there to be so many of the top people in this, in this industry weighing in was beyond what was necessary by a wide margin. And I think that's one of the things about the culture we live in. People don't seem to want to acknowledge the strength of social media, the strength in numbers. Because one person saying one thing is one thing. But once we get to the hundred person, once we get to this almost coordinated reaction, it wasn't coordinated, but I mean, it almost came off that way. I mean, it was, it was just ridiculous. I think one thing you're getting at, um, and that we mentioned at the top of this topic, is um, you know the aggregation aspect, right? Mm -hmm. This was already kind of out there in the world for a day yeah. or two prior to it actually blowing up as a story. And on top of that, she had already said something similar two years ago on a podcast with her and Aaron Andrews. So this is something that I guess people that you know consume this type of media presumably already knew um, and didn't find a big enough deal to, you know, talk about really. Let, let, me, let me give you the headline that Awful yeah. Announcing used um, when they, you know, quote unquote, broke this story. Um, I don't even think that's a fair way to put it because it was just an aggregation. But here's the headline. 
Carissa Thompson admits to completely making up NFL sideline reports. Mm-hmm. Now you you see that, and that's a pretty shocking headline. You right. know, this is a very well known journalist. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not something you expect someone of such a high profile to just you know openly admit to. So right. immediately, you know, when I see that, I think, all right, this already has to be overblown. I mean, if if she just open, she she would never openly admit to something like that and you you know you listen to the you know the soundbite from the podcast and it's like all right i mean she she did say she made up reports but she said all right well i would take anecdotes that i might have gotten over the week and combine that with what i saw myself in the first half didn't necessarily say she attributed them to anyone there's a lot more gray area than the headline on awful right. announcing would have allowed for. I think mm-hmm. if, you know, simply put, like if the headline had any gray area in it, I don't think this is nearly as big of a story as, as it was made out to be. Well, you know, let's be clear. Aggregation is about making people want to click on things that are not interesting. Even just conveying what was obvious, I don't even necessarily think, I, again, I didn't hear the interview. I suspect he was saying these things in a joking style. I don't know if anyone's well, ever heard say this. I'm not, I'm not going to act like I ever listened to these types of podcasts on Barstool. I, I do not. But, uh, you know, the one to two minutes surrounding this comment that I did listen to, you know, it's a jokey light environment. Um, obviously, it's kind of, kind of like a bit of a boys club, this podcast. So um, she knows her audience probably isn't the um, kind of stuck up sports media type. It's probably more of the bro-y frat boy um, demographic. So perhaps she's trying to, you know, play, play it off like she's cool or, you know, she's relatable because she's done stuff like this in her past. Um, that That was the vibe i got from it and you know look again the once once you strip somebody's words out of the context that they were originally set in you are creating a new media product right and you are creating a media product that is devoid of any of the surrounding context including the tone of voice that somebody has but look I, you know i have a lot of respect for what ben Koo has done awful announcing has been always Absolutely, uh, yeah. you know uh, a, a website that uh has uh, been uh Obviously, I mean rebranding after uh, t- after 2010, uh, you know, and and uh, they do good work over there, obviously. But there's a Randall Weems element to some of what that genre does. Now you don't know who Randall Weems is. You don't know who any of the people I mentioned are. Randall Weems <laughs> is a nine-year-old child from the 1990s television series Recess. He is a hunchbacked, receding, hairlined child who is the impish uh, an- antagonist, along with Miss Finster, who is a very gruff older woman who surveys the playground and you know lays down the law. Randall goes out and he listens in on everybody's conversations and spies on them and reports back to Miss Finster to get them in trouble. There is a Randall Weems element to aggregation generally. When I was watching ESPN 20 years ago, before any of this, there would be things that would happen on the air and you couldn't document them, right? So I mentioned this in a previous podcast. There was an episode of Around the Horn years ago where Woody gave a heartfelt FaceTime about like cancer 
like like a, a female specific cancer, I guess it would have been breast cancer or something along those lines. And Max, who was hosting Max Kellerman, made like a snarky comment. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm quoting him directly here, really going after our target demographic there, Woody. And then Woody said, screw you, Max. And that was how the episode ended. That's the, the episode just ended on that. Like, you know, I mean, and that's something that would have been 50 articles today. Back then, it just came and went and PTI came on. <laughs> yeah, it, there, there's something incredible about that. Again, this is not cancel culture at all, but it gets to the thing that I dislike most about this, where people get really upset about stuff people did when they were different people. I mean, what, what is this? Do we really think that a 25-year-old Carissa Thompson and a 41-year-old Carissa Thompson are the same person? I mean, yeah, she's kind of, kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, condoning it by making a joke out of it. But she could also just be saying, can you believe what a, you know, what a blankety blank I was early in my career? Can you believe, you know, I'm, you know I, I just, for me, I, I, again, we're on like, what, 30 minutes of this, but. Yeah, yeah, we, we've gone very long on this. Um, so, you know, to, to wrap this up, I'll, I'll just throw a quick anecdote out there. Um, you know, ever since this uh, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey relationship has kind of gone above board and has uh, gotten a lot of publicity, you know, a popular thing to do on social media now is to go and find old tweets from Travis Kelsey. Um, most of which are are innocuous and funny, um, but there's also been some reported, and this is like the 2009 era, 2010, um, that have been, you know, pretty, you know, reflected pretty unflatteringly on Travis Kelsey. Um, I, I think it's a, you know, it's a good uh, barometer of where uh, a media outlet or reporter or a specific reporter stands based on how they kind of uh, you know, react to things like that. Um, because as you just mentioned, you know, 2010 is an eternity ago when it comes to social media, society at large, politics, everything. So to judge people with a 2023 context by what they said in 2010 is simply unfair. And, and you can really glean a lot from a person based on how they kind of react to certain things like that. And I will say, um, most Taylor Swift fans, even despite the uh, some of the unsavory things that Travis Kelsey said in his past, have actually been supportive, acknowledging that that was a different time. He was a dumb, probably high schooler or maybe early college at that time. Um, you know, 18-year-old boys say, say silly things sometimes. And, um, you know, maybe we should show a little grace when judging people uh, on their actions of, you know, 15 years ago. Or maybe just, you know, stop being so reflexively judgmental all the time too. It's just, you know, a way to, a way to be, uh, to, to me looking up old tweets, man, that's like, ugh, I mean, that's like dirtbag behavior, honestly, to just land the plane here. My thought process is all of the outrage toward Carissa Thompson is misplaced. And it is outrage toward something that we've never really had a conversation about, which is the sideline reporter in modern times. I truly believe that very little has changed in terms of the perception, even honestly among executives, because the hiring practices are not different. The hiring practices, well, they are a little bit different. They're not hiring people who have no qualifications. 
but they are still hiring a very specific look on the sidelines. That tells me it's still 1997. And the anger that is misplaced has a lot to do with that. That's an unresolved issue. Carissa Thompson didn't create it. Maybe she benefited from, from that. Obviously, we can, you know, obviously we know that she fits the description that I'm talking about. But she did not make the conditions that people are upset about. And she did not even worsen the conditions that people are upset about with her completely innocuous uh, anecdote. And again, I want to say, I know cardinal sin of journalism, in my view, sideline reporting can be journalism. And it often is. But when in the context of the specific game itself, when in the context of the entertainment product that is being created, I do not view it that way. Now, when the context of a serious news story is broken out, or there is a broader controversy surrounding this game, then yes, there is a journalism role, obviously. But when we're just talking about, here's what the coach said at halftime, I don't see the cardinal sin. I don't think she should be doing that, but we're talking about an entertainment product. And I want to finish with this. Ronald Reagan, the future president, would call games remotely. And uh, he would call them on the radio and he would receive, uh, I guess, telegrams or whatever, te telegraph, whatever, how, whatever method of conveying information they were using at that time might have been Morse code. But the point is, he would be told what the plays were, and then he would perform his play-by-play. -play. There were times when the mechanism for conveying that information to Ronald Reagan would be delayed. And so Ronald Reagan, the future president, whose you know, presidential library the Republicans all still go to every debate season with that big plane in the background, right? I guess that's Air Force One. I don't know. Uh, Ronald Reagan would fabricate pit by pitch, injuries, whatever. He would fabricate delays in the game to cover for the fact that the mechanism for conveying the 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 live action was delayed. So obviously. That's a different era of sports broadcasting completely. But there has always been an element of, well, entertainment. This is an entertainment product. Do we really think that Kevin Harlan or Eric Collins are always maximally excited? There's an element of playing it up. What Carissa did was wrong, but it is still within that boundary of playing it up that we see very often. I think that for a sideline reporter with a journalistic background, that kind of thought is completely antithetical to what they do. Lisa Salters does not do that. Tracy Wolfson does not do that. But it is part of what this is about. This is an entertainment product, and occasionally people will budget a little bit. This is stuff that has gone on since the beginning. It's gone on since the beginning. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week. It is, of course, Thanksgiving week. And uh, I do want to just say before we sign off that I am, of course, thankful for Drew and all of his help this uh, year, uh, helping on the podcast and uh, stepping in. Uh, it's really been uh, you know, great to be able to keep doing this. Also, those of you who are listening to the pod, I really appreciate uh, that you do so. And of course, those of you who read my work on the site, and I've done so for all of these years. Uh, it is something that I do absolutely value because the reality of the matter is people don't have to actually read the things that you say. So I, I do want to express my gratitude 
for all of you, especially the uh, regular commenters out there. Uh, thank you for reading my work. Thank you for that, John. Also, quite thankful for uh, for the opportunity you've given me. I mean, this has been some of the most fun I've had, uh, you know, early on in my career. So I'm always happy to do this and help with the website. All right. So enjoy the holiday. Have a peaceful, restful one. And we'll see you back here next week with guest Brian Curtis. Thanks a lot. Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt, a classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed indigo. It's 13 years old, soft as a flannel bathrobe, and after a few hundred dirty jobs, demonstrably and undeniably indestructible. This is the kind of sweatshirt girlfriends like to permanently borrow, but I've held on to this one because I got it from American Giant. American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control every link in their own supply chain. That matters because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.